Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I am delighted today to be joined by Jonathan Gustin, who's been on the podcast a couple more times talking about purpose guiding. I recommend those conversations. But today we're going to be talking about a unique event that Jonathan is putting on. He has brought together three of his teachers into what he's calling a non-duality roundtable. So that's going to be with Adyashanti, Rupert Spira, and John Prendergast. So I think that's quite a coup. It's quite an amazing selection of teachers. And so today we're going to talk about why has Jonathan brought these teachers together and what is non-duality. We talk about some of the myths of enlightenment that are common in today's world that certainly had a grip on me in my early spiritual path. We'll talk about what types of paths are suitable to people in our times and the challenges that Jonathan is going to bring to these teachers during the roundtable and why he will do that. Jonathan is the founder of Purpose Guides Institute. He's a purpose guide, a psychotherapist and meditation teacher. He's been based in the San Francisco Bay Area for over 20 years. He's taught at the California Institute of Integral Studies, Spirit Rock Meditation Center and the Non-Dual Wisdom and Mental Health Conference. If you want to Sign up for this non-duality roundtable. It's free. It's on June the 18th at 12 p.m. Pacific time. You can head to purposeguides.org forward slash non-duality dash round dash table. All right, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Jonathan Gustin. Jonathan, my friend, uh, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, I really enjoyed our previous conversations on the podcast, so I'm excited about this one. And the reason why we're here. So, but how are you, first of all? I'm good. It's it's good, good to be on your podcast again, Joel. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So we, we're kind of gathering because you've put, brought together three teachers of yours into this non-duality roundtable, three teachers I really greatly respect. So uh, we wanted to just come together. I want to talk to you today about why you brought them together, but also I think this topic of non-duality is really interesting in our times. Uh, more and more people are oriented to spiritual practice, but also it's coming into the field of coaching more. And also the soul work, the purpose guiding work that you've brought into the world, I think is going to be an interesting element in this conversation too. So we'll kind of um, weave all that in and see where it takes us. Uh, but I think the first thing is just like, what what have you created? Tell us about that. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, I, I should first say that my my background is as a licensed psychotherapist and a meditation teacher and a purpose guide. So I bring all of that to this roundtable. To me, the topic of uh, non-duality is endlessly fascinating. Uh, at 12, I was just smitten with this idea of enlightenment. Didn't know what it was, <laughs> but but very interested in it. Uh, and at 16, I found this fellow right there, Ramana Maharshi, through a book. Um, and so what is non-duality? Um, and I still don't know, by the way. So I'll I'll just take swings at it with you. And maybe together we can we can explore it. But it's a it's an elusive term, but more importantly, is like it's the actual reality. It's like describing reality itself. And so along the way, I acquired these three teachers, or they found me. I don't know how that happened. And um, three living teachers. I went off to India to find a living Ramana Maharshi when I was 19, um, and it didn't work. <laughs> I failed. Um, but it turned out the San Francisco Bay Area had some amazing teachers. And so the three of them, uh, Adya Shanti in the late 90s, who has since become a, a really close friend, um, and then uh, John Prendergast, uh, mid-90s, uh, he was a professor of mine um, and now a close friend. Um, and then I guess maybe 12 years ago, uh, Rupert Spira, an Englishman and uh, who does come to the Bay Area, but lives, I think, in Oxford. Um, and they are, in my opinion, whatever this word enlightenment means, I think they're enlightened. That's how it registers to me. Um, I'm not gripping on that, but you know, the, st the student usually thinks that about their, their teacher and I'm no different. Um, and I, you know, I, each one of them has a slightly different cosmology or viewpoint 
inherent in the fact that they're different human beings. The experience may or may not be exactly the same. In fact, we're going to get into that question. Is the actual experience of enlightenment, you know, of unitive intimacy with the unbounded, is it always the same? But then when we talk about it, when we share it, when we express it, is that where the uniqueness comes in? So that's one question I'd like to get into with you and then with them. And then just the question, awakening itself, what is it? And so even if it is the same exact thing, it's very difficult to describe. So were I to have three Buddhas talking together, um, maybe we could evolve and move the conversation about non-duality forward. It's amazing just to sit with Rupert or just to sit with John or just to sit with Adya and hear them share. It's, 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 it's more than enough, but I'm a very greedy person <laughs> and I, I'm an evolutionary. I'm like, well, can we, can we push this conversation forward? Um, and I don't know. I'm willing to try. Um, and so I convened this. They all said, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And I'm hoping we'll actually challenge each other as the interviewer. My intention is to challenge them. I hope you'll challenge me. And I'd like to, I like to find those friction points. Um, I don't want it to be the thing where Jonathan and his three teachers are all patting each other on the back and agreeing on everything. That's a little boring. Um, I'm interested in some of the differences. And I think the audience um, that comes will be the beneficiary of like, oh, whatever enlightenment is, not everybody speaks about it precisely the same way. And so we'll talk about practice. We'll talk about enlightenment or awakening or realization. We'll talk about reality. We'll talk about soul level purpose. There's not, it's not just about being. It's also about becoming or expressing or dancing or your, your, your illumination into the world. So um, I'm pretty excited to sit with three really fine non-dual teachers and prod and poke them a little bit. Maybe, maybe they won't let me be their student um, after I'm finished with them, but we'll see. There's a number of things you just shared that I could ask questions about. I'm going to go straight towards the challenge first. Like, I'm just super curious. How do you feel that they, I don't know, they need to be challenged, but what do you think is the most important challenge you want to bring to them uh, yeah, I'm curious about that because I think that points to something you're seeing that's important. Yeah. You know, in this field of non-duality, um, there's a beautiful collegialship. There's a friendliness between teachers. I was just listening to a podcast with uh, Rupert and he was very complimentary to Eckhart Tolle, which is just lovely. Um, but people tend to work in their silos. Um not always, but, but often enough, you know, and I understand why if I were, if I had that kind of genius realization that a Rupert Spira has, I'd be like, oh, okay, I guess I'm done. I'll just, I'll just let myself do my thing. Um, but, you know, where, where I think the rubber hits the road is that oftentimes students aren't encouraged to really challenge the teacher and, and even if they were, they may not have the tools to do so very well. And so do Buddhas get together? Is there a, is there a place where, I'm using the word Buddha a little, you know, freely, but um, is there a place where Buddhas can kind of challenge one another? Like one question I got from a friend, and I'd love if you have any questions you'd like me to ask, please let me know. Uh, and it was this. Um, do you share your struggles with your students? If not, why not? So that question is really good because um, if you only go to retreat and you see the sage on the stage and they are in the, they're in their element, they're just doing beautiful work and, it, and they don't really necessarily, you know, find the, the time or right place to share their struggles, it could appear that enlightenment solves every problem. Like you don't have health problems. You don't have relationship problems. You don't have problems with your kids. You don't have problems with money. You don't have problems with whatever. Um, 
I think that is a real disadvantage to students. So one of, one of the things that I'm really feel lucky about is that, you know, because some of these world-class teachers are my friends, I've gotten to know them and I'm like, oh, they're humans, <laughs> right? So John and I have vacationed together and uh, uh, Ajishanti and I you know, came back about four or five months ago from a long road trip to the Grand Canyon. So I got to know him as a person, an exemplary, amazing human being, but a human, <laughs> right? It's a human Buddha. Um, and so um, one, one thing to challenge would be like, well, should, should realized teachers hide their struggles? So that's one. Another is around practice, around pedagogy, right? Um, let's compare and contrast. Let's, let's take notes and say, well, well, what have you found to be the most efficient way of supporting a student to experience, you know, total realization, if such a thing is possible. And then I would love to sort of have them play them against each other a little bit, challenging each other. Oh, I tried that, but actually da 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 da. So, and to do so in a public forum, if if they're interested, they may not answer any of my questions, but I, I think this could be really, really helpful. Do you think that is, I've been thinking about this and uh, talking to people as well and, do you think that's one of the biggest myths that's put out there in the kind of current spiritual scene that there is this kind of enlightenment moment? And then after that, you know, everything's perfect. You never experience fear, anger, jealousy ever again. You know, you're never disturbed in any way. Uh, do you think that's one of the biggest myths put out there? Is it, is it a myth? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is just my opinion, <laughs> um, you know, as, as everything I say is, um, I do think it is a myth, um, having, uh, had the privilege of getting to know realized beings and more than just those three, but those are my three closest ones. Um, you know, do they never experience stress? No, that's not, that's just not the case. Um, lower levels, more equanimity, like equanimity is something that really grows bigger and stronger as a result of realization. Um, but that said, would every Buddha who is late for their plane and may miss the flight completely and perfectly equanimous through the whole thing? I would submit no. <laughs> Some of them may stress out <laughs> a little bit about missing their plane flight as say, you know, many other people might. And how about relationships? You know, relationships tend to end. <laughs> they tend to end before marriage. And then even at marriage, only 50% of those last. And so do, do enlightened beings have a lower incidence of separation and divorce? Um, I don't know that anyone's done a study, so I couldn't give you actual figures. Um, but I'm going to make a guess here and say, no, about the same, because, because relationships ebb and flow. I mean, it is the way of relationships. So does being a Buddha mean necessarily that you're going to, you know, have your relationships last longer? You know, I, I leave it to the audience to think about that. Um, I don't think so. Um, because for one thing, um, enlightenment doesn't necessarily mature the personality and ego. It can. We hope that it does. It can be part of it. But this, this little saying that a colleague of mine said, wake up, grow up, show up. And the wake up refers mostly to classical or traditional enlightenment. The grow up, and so that's why I'm a meditation teacher, because that's, that's of great interest to me waking up. I became a psychotherapist because I was also interested in growing up into an integrated, full-functioning adult. That's, that's a little different than enlightenment, <laughs> right? So the Jonathan personality ego, even if it is ultimately insubstantial from the point of view of enlightenment, it still has a kind of momentum and energy. Before enlightenment, 
I liked um, jazz, skiing, um, and ice cream. After enlightenment, I still like jazz, skiing, and ice cream. It doesn't, you know, he, and I'm talking about myself in the third person, has his own karma, his own unfolding, right? I was heterosexual before and I'm heterosexual now. It, you know, it can change and that's fine. Um, so there's a kind of momentum. And one of the things that's really difficult is to become uh, a really mature adult. And so um, that's, that's no small thing. So the realm of psychotherapy, the realm of coaching, right? Optimizing your life, making your life more congruent with your best self. And I would add a third part, which is showing up with your soul level purpose as a demonstration of love, as a gift of service to life. And um, this, I think, is actually a deeply spiritual um, world, if you will. Um, but it's not the transcendent kind of nirvana, classical enlightenment. It's a soul. So it's uniqueness, but not at the level of personality. At the level of personality, as I said, I like ice cream, women, uh, skiing, and jazz. Great. <laughs> but, you know. The world, I care about it, but the world doesn't really care. Um, but inside of me, I discovered when I was 20, a, uh, a unique myth is the way that um, Carl Jung put it. And the unique myth that came to me was whole person midwifery. And I'd never heard it before. It was sort of a fresh piece of information. It, was, it came in a vision. And... Um, I recognized it instantly as my dharma, uh, as, as the, that thing that I would do, that I would have to be loyal to, that I would have to submit to, in the best sense of the word, um, to be of service. There's many ways of being of service. Uh, but being a whole person midwife is, is mine. And so the delivery vehicles, the way I deliver whole person midwifery is as a psychotherapist, meditation teacher, and um, purpose guide. And that those three things are the worldly things that people see me do out there in the world, but underneath it is this soul level purpose. There's, uh, again, and there's a, I'm making notes here because I want to pick up on a few things that you've yeah. said. Um, I guess we should also talk about what we mean by non-duality as well. Um, and the maybe the differences that each of these te teachers might emphasize. And, and I have a question about that. This is kind of a question that I would kind of like to ask them. I hope there's a coherent question inside of it, but it's yeah. about something Go that you it. said, which is, you know, you said that, yeah, the, the we talked about the myth, you know, of, um, of the perfect enlightened being, the state afterwards. And, and you described, you know, equanimity, you know, if the Buddha was late for a plane, you know, would they, would they you know, probably they're going to feel a bit stressed. People are going to feel that. So the question I have is about the difference between, and we might get into technical terms here for people, but like a, almost like a sutric approach versus a tantric approach and which one might be more suitable because it almost feels like there, there, there are kind of slight contradictions in, you know, like a sutric approach, which is almost, I think that's like the, the most common approach in at least modern Buddhism in the West. And that, that's a kind of like renunciate approach almost, you know, it's like, uh, and, it, and it often has this focus on, on almost like the no, no self, you know, and, um, um, and the, the reason I'll, I'll bring my own personal Please. sort of contemplation around that is like, on the one hand, it can lead to almost like um, equanimity. You know, I'm like, you know, I might be feeling some adverse emotional state or something to something that happened to me. And then, and then I'm almost like de detaching, disidentifying from that state. But it can also... Um, but I'm also interested in being a human being, feeling fully alive in the world, uh, being in contact with the world, 
you know, like in, in some Buddhist traditions, they even talk about cessation, like the cessation of perceptual experience or as being, you know, something we really want to cultivate. But, you know, is that person who experiences that cessation of experience actually detached? You know, do they care if their child gets run over, for example? Yeah. Or are they just completely equanimous? You know, yeah. Are they completely equanimous with that the world is, you know, burning outside? So, I guess I'm, you know, getting to this point of like, in Tantra, it seems to emphasize a different, there's a different emphasis, just like in in the world, you know, working with emotionality and our ways of being in a kind of, I don't know if I want to call it more embodied way, because I think people would question that, but it seems to be more of it. So, yeah. And then if I just add one little thing in, which is like, and then, so then it seems like a lot of spiritual approaches that then added in psychotherapy to compensate for, you know, that, that kind of more renunciate approach because that can lead to bypassing and shadow and stuff. And I think that's a good thing too, but I'm so, yeah, I guess I don't know if you can pull something out of what I've just shared with you. It's a big, that would be what I would, if I was to sit down with the three of them, I'd love to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, well, let's have a discussion rather than me just sort of you <laughs> yeah, know, sure. challenge me back and let's let's see if we can have a little roundtable. Um, hmm. Well, so uh, you use the word uh, sutric and tantric, so um, I would I would translate that for for the audience as the the uh, um, the inward facing path where we turn away from the world um, and phenomena and materiality. Um, and we, we, we trace back all the way to, we could call it essence, the unbounded awareness. And in such experiences, so I've experienced in deep meditation, the cessation of perception of everything where the world drops away in, um, in, uh, in, in Buddhism, they say, first there are mountains, then there are no mountains. Then there's a third part I'll get to in a moment. And so in this very deep meditation, in my experience, the world disappears and I don't care if it ever comes back. I just don't. Um, uh, I, I, I don't even realize I have a wife and a 14-year-old child and, and I'm, I'm perfectly content. Um, my experience is it, it's often quite blissful, peaceful, equanimous, illuminated, free, unbounded, timeless. Um, the weight of Jonathan and his life and his worries and his whatever. It's just, it's so gone. I can't, I don't even remember him. So I'm glad for this experience or experiences, many of them in meditation. But in Buddhism, in Zen specifically, they say first there are mountains, ego and personality. Then there are no mountains. That's quote unquote, uh, a, 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 a threshold of a certain stage or degree of enlightenment, let's say. Um, and then there are mountains again. First, there are mountains, no mountains, then mountains again. And to me, that mountains again has a few layers. But one of them is that uh, unless you're Ramana Maharshi, a one loincloth type of guy who doesn't want any, you know, marriage, kids, car, money, whatever, which is fine. There is a classical sage type. He was that guy, but I like jazz and skiing and ice cream. And I'm not, I'm not in a rush to get away from that. I'm not in a rush to get away from the world. The world, even if it is Maya, an illusion, um, is an illusion that I, I love, I'm attached to, and I'm not actually even wanting to, um, transcend that attachment in a, in a way that's completely, you know, that's complete. That's a total detachment from life. Um, if that's what someone wants to do, then fine. You know, um, I, I love my family and I love the more than human family. And I love the trees and I love this planet. And so when I see these existential threats, like climate change or uh, artificial intelligence or nuclear bombs. Um, I'm moved. I don't, and I think this is one of the things I want to bring up. It's like, well, does a Buddha care? Does a Buddha want to do anything about it? Is a Buddha feel obligated? Does a Buddha think 
you know, what, 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 what is that? Um, what is our relationship to life? So the tantric approach, the outward facing path um, is to one, fall in love with life, to be, to be quite attached in a sense, not pathologically attached. There's attachments, a very interesting word. We could get into it because I think there's like small A and big A. Um, if you're attached, like it must be a certain way, well, that, I'm not selling that. But I, I'm attached to you, Joel. I mean, I like you and I wish you well. And if you tell me, you know, you broke your hand today, I'm going to feel compassion. I care. So, yeah, the inward facing path and the outward facing path. I teach a, an integral path, which is both. But why but they're, they, they go together beautifully. Um, yeah, I'll stop there for a moment. Mm. Yeah, I do think that to speak on the side of them going together, you know, there's a certain level of uh, um, opening needed access to, you know, um, open awareness or, you know, s- something other than just being identified with, you know, a separate sense of self and and mainly kind of thinking, locate in the head. Uh, that that yeah, if there's access to something bigger than that, more spacious than that, that that can allow them more skillfully to be working with that out, outward facing path too. You know, so there's less less attachment there. So that's where I see the two coming together, and and yet you know, like it does seem, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think if I speak honestly, it's like I've I've felt in my own practice where I've perhaps fallen into, you know, and I'm aware we want to get back to some of these other, you know, aspects of this, the, but like, I, 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 you know, like over application of practice in certain ways, you know, like deconstructing experience, you know, through meditation and, and then, and land, landing in a, almost like a nihilistic place uh, or, or feeling like um, the whole world is an illusion, you know, well, fuck it, you know, but Actually, it didn't feel very life-affirming to, to land in that place. And through the help of skillful guidance, including John Prendergast, actually, must have given some kudos there. Yeah. Coming back, coming back from that place and yeah. landing in a deeper place of integration. Yeah, exactly. That, and that happens like often, like just this morning, I have, you know, I meditate in the morning and um, it's as if there's a, so there's Jonathan, and then there's, I'll call it awareness or consciousness. And um, I woke up more with Jonathan, like brush my teeth and eat breakfast and get ready for the podcast, uh, have some coffee. And then, and it was fine. And, and um, I wanted to answer some emails, you know, and then I meditated and and John, it it what became it was like as if Jonathan was foreground and consciousness was sort of background, and then it switched. And my agenda for the day kind of fell away to a great extent, and I was just resting as consciousness. Um, and then my mind would come in, and I'd be like thinking about pl- planning or something, and I go, "Oh wait, no, 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 let's stay there." Um, and they're both t- total reality, <laughs> real non-duality. I'll call it total reality because non-duality is a weird word. Um, we includes, could define what yeah non-duality yeah. is. Yeah. Well, it, total reality includes everything. It has the word total. <laughs> it has the word reality, which is what is real, what is truly real. And it, all of it, it leaves nothing out. And so the phenomena of Jonathan, whether you regard it as real or not, the phenomena of Joel, whether you think it's an illusion or not, it it has some uh, substance to it. And so embracing it all, the, the whole of it, love leaves nothing out. Love is the cessation of boundaries. So it's not just about being a sage who's totally equanimous all the time. I, I don't want to transcend caring. I have another teacher that I love, but uh, she's gone to places that I'm not sure I would want to go. Byron Katie um, is really blasted awake from what I can tell. 
Um, and I got to know her before she was famous. So I got to do private walks with her and sort of, you know, test her a little. And I was like, wow. And I remember just reading one of her books, you know, where she said, you know, she fell on the floor, maybe she broke her nose. I, I don't remember. And she, um, I hadn't read, read this book for a long time. And, and she was, her thought was something to the effect of, I love that I smashed my face on the floor because she has a, an orientation, which is profound. It's radical. I love what is totally. Now there's some advantages to that. If you love whatever happens, <laughs> you will be happy. I mean, it's just like you smash your face, you're happy. You get on Oprah, you're happy. You know, great. Um, I don't know. There's something about that. While I appreciate it to a degree, kind of respect it too. I'm like, well, I mean, if you're going to smash your face and on the floor and she went blind, she, she had suffered blindness for some time. I would be bummed if sightedness left me. Because it would be hard to take hikes and drive, and I, I would, you know. Um, so complete non-attachment of that in that manner. Yeah, I think I think one of the things a, a spiritual aspirant, a, a spiritual practitioner, needs to ask themselves is, what is true for me and what I want? What's really what's the it, if I if there were enough time and good inputs, what's the destiny for which I'm hoping will unfold? And uh, I would say not quite like Byron Katie, um, which isn't to say that isn't perfectly amazing, <laughs> unique, and wondrous. But we have to be careful to make sure that we don't impose our teacher's destiny on our ourselves. There are householders like me. I'm not a one line cloth type of guy like Ramana, who is in love with a mountain. That was his main sort of spiritual, um, you know, his love life, so to speak, which is beautiful. But I'm like, I, I like humans. Have you, have you found that each of the teachers uh, in the round table um, invite you into that inquiry of, what what are you looking for? Like, think deeply about what is motivating you on this path. And do you find, therefore, that they are each, in a way, offering a kind of different take or, you know, flavor of what awakening can be? And And how much do you think that is connected to, yeah, in a way, what you just said, like their own, you know, it's their own kind of... Uh, Rupertness and adyashantiness. So I mixed a few questions in there, but I'll just see where you take it. Yeah. I think the way they communicate about enlightenment is a little different. Like one of the challenges I'll give Rupert um, is like, I don't normally don't challenge my teachers very much. I just, I'm their student. I just learn, <laughs> but I'll be a host of a, you know, a facilitator of a round table. So it's a different role. Um, Rupert uses the word happiness and enlightenment often synonymously. His most recent book has the, the word happiness in it. And philosophically, I don't agree with that position. Um, uh, experientially, I don't agree with that position. Uh, pedagogically, as a teacher, I get why that could be helpful. And he will say things like, um, well, if enlightenment were everything you would think it would be, but it would make you unhappy, would you want it? And I'd be like, no, I wouldn't. If, right. if total abiding enlightenment, and I don't have total abiding enlightenment, <laughs> uh, you know, that's a very rare, whatever abiding enlightenment is, and we can get into that. That's a, well, anyway, I don't have it. <laughs> so um, if, that, if that was the case, I'd, I'd pass. So he takes that to mean that what we really want is happiness. And I think there's some truth in that, but I still wouldn't, happiness to me is a, a phenomena that I experience. It comes and it goes. And I love it. I, I'm as much in favor of happiness as, as the neighbor to the left of me and to the right of me. But what happiness seems to me to come and go in is Consciousness is 
awareness. So I'm interested to kind of challenge him and ask some of the, the other teachers if they're inclined to, they don't have to. Do you think happiness and enlightenment is synonymous? Because it's, it's a really big question where all, all the Buddhists and, and, you know, Hindus and whatever, we're all practicing or non-practicing um, for enlightenment. And, but what is it? What does it mean? And so um, it was a very, I mean, he's a very careful and precise and brilliant teacher, Rupert. So it's very interesting to me that he will use the word happiness as a synonym. And um, so I'm wanting to challenge that. And I think with the three of them, maybe we can like get an even a better answer than if you only apply one mind, one experienced Buddha to it, have three together in real time. Maybe that's the future of, of, um, of the Dharma, of enlightenment. You know, they say the next Buddha is the Sangha. So this is my little tiny contribution is to get three Buddhas, a Sangha of Buddhas. Maybe the next round table will have five. Maybe the next round table will have 10. Um, that might be a little unwieldy, <laughs> but, but like a council of Buddhas, you know, instead of one sage, one sage, one sage. Anyway, it's a, it's an aspiration. We'll see if it happens. Mm. What, well, just on that note, I think that this is what's so important about this conversation for me is that bringing teachers together, and I think they've never been together in this group before, to be able to start to compare, you, you know, because I, I stole this off John Churchill, who I was listening to, who's talking about the need to clarify a kind of planetary dharma and to, you know, actually... Um, you know, a lot of words like the void or emptiness that, you know, have so many connotations to it. Uh, I really like what he was saying. He was like, what if we could actually instead start to clarify what are the phenomenological experiences that those are pointing to and the, and the precise words that fit with that, like vividness and luminosity. And, and then we could start to create a common kind of lexicon and syntax and, and, and see where there are differences and, and similarities. I think that's something that speaks to me and yeah, could potentially emerge out of dialogues like this with the kinds of questions you're talking about. I mean, you could riff on that. And also like, do you think that what, how do you, how would you characterize John or what do you want to challenge John on and add you on? Do Yeah. Kind of well, first, I love what you said about John Churchill, um, yeah. uh, a planetary dharma. And we don't want to force it, right? It may be, maybe it's three separate enlightenments and, and the Kabbalistic Jewish tradition is really different than the Christian mystic tradition and different than the Sufis. I don't think it is, but I don't want to, I don't want to pressure you know, I, reality into, into something organized. That said... It does seem to me that we may be dealing with the phenomena of the elephant, you know, where one person is holding the tail and another person is emphasizing the ears. And it's all, all these blind people, meaning humans, trying to um, describe reality. The more I study, recently I've been, you know, really into Parmenides and Empedocles through a book called Reality by um, an amazing guy named... Um, <laughs> oh, I've forgotten him as well. He's an it'll, English it'll, guy It'll too. come in. Yeah, it'll come to me in a moment. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, the Western tradition has non-duality. And I'll ask, I know that uh, Adya knows uh, Peter Kingsley. Adya knows Peter Kingsley. And I believe John has read P Peter Kingsley. So, so, oh, well, is that from what you can understand? about what Parmenides and Empedocles is saying through Peter Kingsley, is that the same as the Hindu and, and Buddhist version of enlightenment? Is it just another way or is it, or is it something different? And, you know, we can't necessarily know a hundred percent. I'm not looking for that. Um, Parmenides has been gone for, for quite some time. Um, and Peter Kingsley really comes on strong. <laughs> it's his way. Um, he's a howler, as he says. Um, but I think, I think this is the time, right? With people who are, you know, John was steeped in um, Kashmir Shaivism with, with Jean Klein, who was a teacher of mine as well. Adya comes from the Zen 
uh, tradition, um, and mostly in part, um, uh, Rupert's uh, teacher, uh, actually his grand teacher was also Jean Klein. Um, so uh, I think it's a really, it's a question a lot of us really care about. Are we all talking about the same thing? What is it? And then maybe now that it's the 21st century, uh, an update, uh, a, a syntax, as you said, as Churchill said. Yeah. And do you think uh, they, there's an interest or an opening for them to talk about um, like an imaginal experience, subtle experience? Uh, I feel that that's often like an area which is under yeah. um, kind of spoken or how can I say underemphasized or even kind of brushed away, you know, in, in modern non-dual circles. It's all about, you know, direct pure awareness and, right. you know, but it seems to be that can get a bit dry or it's, it's like the poetry of life, the depth of, I mean, depth might not be a real affair, but you know, you know what I mean? It's kind of missing mm-hmm. in some way. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think these teachers and how, what, what do you think about that too? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with you that the whole imaginal world um, uh, in uh, in Sufism, it's called uh, Mundus Imaginalis, uh, Alam Al Methal, uh, the imaginal world. I translate it as the imaginal matrix, and it's real. It's it's the, it's imaginally real. Imagination or soul is an organ of perception. It's not there's there's the literal world, what we call the literal world, although it's imaginal too. Right through our our discursive cognitive abilities is a beautiful world. I'm in love with it, and I want to I want to keep walking in the forest. I'm in love with trees. I don't know why. I just love being amongst them. But they are imaginal characters. So Carl Jung is one of my Maha, you know, um, masters in this, and he lived deeply in the imaginal, very grounded guy. I mean, building castles. I mean, (laughs) how many sages do that? These towers. Um, And he viewed the imaginal characters in his psyche as absolutely real. Uh, And wasn't a stark, late raving lunatic. In fact, it was a super genius and helped many, many people through his his practice as a a psychiatrist. Um, Yes, I do find a great difference between these three. Uh, and I will challenge them on it. Um, I'm like, where's soul? First of all, what is soul? This is, does the word mean anything to you? I mean, I know a little what the answer is with them, but I'm going to just play the, the interviewer. Um, so, but I'll give you a little preview. Um, Adya at first was not too smitten with it, <laughs> but he's grown and changed. And that's something that I want to talk about with them is that their enlightenment evolves. It's dynamic. This idea, when I was younger, I thought enlightenment was like a pinnacle, like a mountaintop. And then the idea was to just like camp there for as long as you can. And that was abiding enlightenment. Um, And I don't believe that anymore. Uh, He has changed so much so that um, when he did a podcast, the first person he invited, I was really humbled by this, was me to talk about soul. I'm like, are you doing that because we're friends? (laughs) You know, he goes, yeah, maybe a little. I said, and, and he goes, because your work is so important. It's not being talked about. And he said, it's not my thing to talk about. So it was interesting. He was like, I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily do a lot of integration with that, but I'm more than friendly towards it. Wow. Mm. Now with Rupert, I would ask about soul level purpose and the last time I asked him, which was many years ago, so he may have evolved since then, he, he, was, he brushed it off. I can imagine. I was going to say if anyone He just yeah. brushed it off. <laughs> Not interested. Yeah. Not interested. And so it'll be interesting to have these three teachers talking with each other because, you know, I, I want Rupert to challenge them. Maybe me and Adya are wrong. I don't okay. know. Yeah. And John, I think, is also going to be open to something like that. That's my sense as well. Yeah. 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 I and, think so. Uh, what What do you see as the um, synergy between the two as well? You know, how because I certainly, and we should talk about non-duality and 
therapy and coaching because um, well, let's stop there. But I'll ask this first question of, you know, do you see there is a synergy or a, a kind of collaboration even between like a non-dual awakening and a kind of mythopoetic or soul or, or I don't know, awakening is the right word or, you know, yeah. embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll offer two sort of like visual or models for this. Neither of them are true, but to, to sort of help there's total reality. So when we talk about worlds of awakening, it's, it's somewhat poetic, right? It's, it's just, it's all on one unbounded indivisible um, reality. And from a human perspective, we could poetically talk about transcendence to the upper world of enlightenment and a descendence of burrowing down into our depths to discover our soul level purpose. That's fine to do it that way. Another way to talk about it would be a colleague of mine, Todd, said, well, it's more like a smooth transition, right? It's like a, I would use the word a graded wash, like when you do... Um, uh, watercolors. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's the absolute pure white light, if you will, um, over here. And then it just, you know, it goes darker into a darker and darker blue, let's say. Um, and so there's a whole spectrum emanating from pure white light is all of these colors, and there's different depths, just as if like you were at the surface of the ocean and you went down, it would get deeper and deeper blue and maybe all the way to black while you're down there and there's no light. Beautiful. It's all part of the ocean. And so do I, I, would, I would say that the ocean waves are like um, us, you know, what we conventional lives and so forth. And then there's a whole realm where there's, it's infused with light but it's below the surface and that's the imaginal realm. And we touch it constantly um, in deep, in, in sleeping uh, dreams, um, but also in, in waking, which we can talk about if you want. And then you can go all the way to sort of the bottom, if you will, right? Absolute stillness. Of course it's equanimity. There's, there's no movement. It's, it's just, you don't feel the coldness or the pressure of the depth. It's just absolutely free. But total reality includes all of that and more. And the and more is important because what I realize is my, my experience and my intellectual understanding is growing, which must mean that there is way more than I've touched. Way more. <laughs> so, so great. I won't be able to finish it all in this lifetime. Not, I don't even think close. So that's a question to ask them. Hey, Adya, what's the current edge of your spiritual emergence? Hmm. Hey, John, <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you flirting with? What's on the edge of your own evolution? Um, I'd be interesting to hear what they say. And I may, it may be beyond my pay grade. I may be like, well, I don't know what you're talking about because that's 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 several stages in my future, but that's okay. I don't have to understand the answer. Just just try to listen. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, that's a great advert for me to listen in. I can't wait to hear what they might say to questions like that. And um, maybe then we can touch on one last question, which I think weaves in a little bit of also where I was pointing towards in the last question, which is, you know, the, uh, what non-duality can bring to our work. And, you know, like I was just thinking about the synergy between non-duality and, and our soul in that, um, yes, there's a, you know, you mentioned about the kind of growing up, like the ther therapeutic integrative work that can take place but it seems like, you know, in combination, there's something more possible than just doing one. And it seems like, you know, again, like if you meditate or if you if you have experiences that take you beyond just being identified with thinking and with being, you know, located in the head or something, 
that can allow for like a, a, a space for a deeper kind of sensitivity and attunement to other types of experiences to come through. And so I'm curious for you, like how you see, you know, that, that process taking place and, and particularly maybe non-duality serving the work you do as a therapist, uh, if at all, you know, cause, and I'll just preface that with, as a coach, I've seen, Maybe at least maybe we're not in the realm of non-duality, but presence. Uh, if somebody can begin to shift into a kind of state of presence, not as something they do, but as something they are, they can then access a, a quality of uh, being with, of 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 uh, loving or attending to their hurt parts in a way that yeah. wasn't available before. So, so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a simple and maybe older fashioned, but but still a beautiful way of coaching is you have a human ego mind and another human ego mind, and they work to explore some facet of you know human life to make it work better. It's one just one little way of saying it. Um, lovely, great, um, but I think a lot of the people. Um, a large portion of the people who come to Coaches Rising um, want more than just that, right? So it's 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 human flourishing again. This word totality. So even if the focus is somewhat narrow, you know what what should I do? You know, with my work might be a a, a question, an inquiry. Are we are we doing it ego to ego, personality to personality? Not bad, but I think there's a big upgrade. We can rise from that to coach 2.0, where we include the we attempt to include the totality of both individuals. So we're seated in presence. And that opens up all these different organs. So now we're not like trying to make the poor mind ferry all the water and chop all the wood. It's too much. It's stressful. It's it's my mind couldn't have figured out my soul level destiny. Whole person midwifery would never come to me. There's no part of me that thought I wanted to catch babies. So the word midwife wasn't like, oh yeah. yeah. Um, it just, it was, a, it was a vision. And so can we have coaching that includes visionary experience? And I don't mean it has to be like a burning bush on Mount Sinai, although it could be but uh, your own personal visionary experience and a coach, an integrative um, uh, soul adjacent or infused non-dual coach is so much more adequate to the task of helping the coachee discover X, Y, and Z because they're not squeezing themselves or their coachee into a narrow band. They're opening up all, I call these organs of perception. And there's so many of them. There's so many of them. Meditation has taught me about some of them. Uh, uh, soul guiding, soul level purpose guiding has taught me about some of them. Therapy has taught me about some of them. So why not, you know, it, it would be like driving your car with one tire inflated, two inflated, three inflated, four inflated. The car will move forward in any case. But the ride and the uh, the re reduction of friction will be so much more, so much, so much better. Yeah, yeah, and and just to add, you know, for me in this age, both when you know there's an obvious transition between worldviews, you know, uh, and and uh, I think. Um, a great inquiry or a great transition taking place in what it means to be human, you know, an expansion perhaps in this sense of what it means to be human, plus uh, things like AI coming in and being able to replicate a lot of procedural therapy or coaching. It's access to this more expanded sense of self or perception that is going to 
become more and more important and the differentiating factor, that's something I'm starting to feel. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a big, the big call in our times for yeah. those, you know, I don't, I, I guess I'm careful. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying we should all go there for those yeah. who feel called to it. Ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and then this is going to sound maybe, you know, a little, a little hubris. I think coaches 1.0, therapists 1.0, and meditation teachers 1.0 will go the way of um, the horse cart uh, eventually. Because the the tools are real. And and if you're it's just better to have a, a tool set that includes more human capacities, um, broadly understood when I say the word human here. Um, but yeah, whether a person's called to it and when they're called to it. Yeah. It's just, every, everyone should, everyone should see what's really alive for me now as a coach. What, what is pulling me to learn? What's, you know, I've been spending time with, um, um, uh, internal family systems, just, just, just more <laughs> of it. I started it 25 years ago and I'm just like, I think I want to return there and rush up and learn more. Great. That's what's mm-hmm. interesting, interesting to me today. You know, do I have to talk about it with you today? And no, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's just what's kind of lighting me up. Um, yeah. One of the things. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I also love that work, that application of that work in coaching too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, is there, you know, anything you want to say about the round table as we just end this conversation? Uh, I do want to also let people know that we've done a couple of previous podcasts. So we didn't have space today to go into some of the terms you brought in and the, particularly the purpose guiding soul work. But, you know, if you go back to those podcasts, you will get a deeper dive into some of that. But yeah, would yeah. you like to share about the, you know, say anything about the roundtable? Yeah, very much so. Um, well, I'm prejudiced about these three teachers, but having said that, um, Rupert Spira, Adyashanti, and John Pendergast are amongst the finest non-dual teachers living on the planet today. Um, and they're excellent human beings. They are very articulate, uh, beautiful human beings. And uh, they've never come together in a, in a round table. Um, so if enlightenment, total realization, reality, um, non-duality is of interest to you, I think, um, I think it could be a really good discussion. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a train wreck, <laughs> but um, I'm going to attempt to you know, have it be something really useful. Um, there's no paywall. We do ask for a donation at the end of the um, event, but we want to leave nobody out. Um, so you can just register at purposeguides.org. If you're interested in the, the purpose guiding work, um, we do free introductory sessions. So on the same site, you can sign up for one of those and hear a little bit about um, soul level purpose. And the third thing we do is um, meditation sessions. Again, no paywall. You just sign up. A donation is asked at the end. And um, one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, show people the spectrum of meditations in a way that they can see the essential truth that what Churchill said, what did you say? A planetary Dharma. Hmm. So we do um, Dzogchen or a version of it. I'm not, I'm not uh, empowered to do straight traditional Dzogchen, but the pointing out instructions one day, uh, inquiry, uh, Ramana Maharshi's, you know, who am I, what am I, inquiry, Atma Vichara, another day, Nisargadatta Maharaj's I am meditation, another day, Soto Zen's Shikantaza, another day, Parmenides and Empedocles' um, incubation, another day. So there's more, I'm not going to list them all. The point being that um, it can be helpful to really specialize in one, not to like go from meditation to meditation to meditation every single time. I'm not recommending that, but it's nice to have a little taste of these different traditions. It helps you become not overly parochial and overly focused on just, you know, like this is the only path. As you know, people become can become Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sufi, you know, fundamentalists and so forth. So, um, so there's that option as well. 
Nice. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. I really enjoyed our conversation today. I did too. Thanks for having me on again. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you.